Chapter 20, Invisible Friends I stared at the billboard by the side of the road, trying to understand these new foreign letters. Uncertainty quickly displaced my previous enthusiasm. Do they even speak English or Italian here, I wondered? What currency do they use? Europe just introduced the euro last month. Do they accept it? Do they have bank machines in small towns? Slovenia was part of Yugoslavia, which was a communist regime, wasn't it? Are there even churches here? It was difficult to corral the many questions that invaded my mind, but eventually the warm sunshine and the pleasant surroundings won over for the short distance to Kozina, a simple village anchored by a gas station, a bar, and a grocery store, and adorned with simple, unassuming homes. Curious stares followed us as we walked down the road. We stopped at the bar, clear gathering place for the men of the village, and greeted them in Italian. They responded in Slovenian. I had assumed that at least here, so close to the Italian border, they would speak Italian, but they didn't. Alberto crossed himself, and I made the sign of the cross with my fingers, trying to indicate that we needed the church. I sincerely hoped we weren't offending anyone with our gestures. A young man approached and held out his cell phone, motioning for me to take it. Speaking in Italian, the man on the line explained that there was no church in town and that the nearest one was at least 15 kilometers away. He confirmed that Slovenia accepted the euro, but returned the change in the local currency. I thanked the stranger profusely, and returned the phone to the clearly pleased young man, thanking him also. Alberto and I agreed that we couldn't go another 15 kilometers. It was already late afternoon, and it had been a grueling day of walking. We strolled about the side streets, searching for a sign, heavenly or otherwise, that would lead us to shelter. We finally found a pension, and with the money that Alberto was given earlier that morning from a well-wisher, we split the cost and spent our first night in Slovenia. We sat in our room the following morning, enjoying a breakfast of cookies and juice. Alberto appeared distracted, so I asked if he slept well. I did, he responded, but I had more strange dreams. I marveled at his ability to recall his dreams so vividly, while I usually recalled only snippets. Our last dream talk about Wizard had revealed a side of Alberto that I found disconcerting. I wasn't sure why his ideas frightened me so much, only that they pulled me into spiritual territory that I resisted. Despite my reticence, however, I asked him to tell me his dream. I was with a group of about six children, he said, aged between four and ten. I was maybe twelve. You were also there, but younger than me. We were walking to Jerusalem, and were happy and full of life, singing and playing along the way, and we wore old, frayed tunics that were our only possessions. But far ahead of us was a giant about three meters tall, with long, dark hair, who was dressed in lumberjack clothing and who was carrying an axe. He walked through towns, smashing windows with his axe and blaming it on us. 
I felt that he fed from the destruction and the fear that he awakened in people. Without even knowing us, people mistrusted us. But when we arrived and spoke our truth, fully and undaunted, they understood and welcomed us. The giant never attacked us directly, though. I think he was afraid of us, because the closer we got to him, the more desperate his actions became. When we finally reached him, we marched right up to him and laughingly shooed him away with our hands and with our sticks, chanting in unison the words, No miedo, no miedo, which mean no fear. The giant began to shirk away, holding his hands out in defense. With every word that we sang, his body became smaller and smaller. He screamed in outrage, but it was too late. His body kept shrinking until it finally disappeared into the grass beneath some bushes nearby. Well, it's easy to see that the giant represents fear, I remarked. We're the children, and with our demeanor, we were helping others dissolve their fears. Alberto agreed and added, but it doesn't end there. I asked him to go on. From behind those bushes, two figures emerged, he continued. They were short and slim and wearing what looked to me like terrible disguises, bald heads, fake hair, mismatched street clothing. They came near me and whispered that it was time for me to go. I was excited to join them and knew that something wonderful was waiting for me, but felt terribly sad at having to leave everyone. You and the children saw these men too, and you clung to me, crying, begging me to stay. The two men patiently waited. I felt the tears welling up in my eyes, as if I were living that moment of anguish. A carpet appeared beneath your feet, Alberto went on, and ever so slowly started to slide, pulling you and the children away from me leaving a trail of dust in its wake. You were in front of the group and looked especially dismayed. The last image I have before waking up is of my tear-streaked face watching you disappear in the distance and feeling such profound sadness that my heart ached. Do you think something is going to separate us? I asked. I'm not sure, he responded. Well, who were the people who were asking you to go with them? I asked. Alberto shifted uncomfortably. Do I want to know this? I added. After a lengthy pause, Alberto said, I believe they were beings from another world or dimension. You mean aliens? I exclaimed. Tranquila, let me explain, Alberto quickly soothed. These entities are like angels to me, spiritual guides, not something to be afraid of. I see the world as connected and not just here on this earth and on this physical plane. So to me, there's no limit as to where love and guidance can come from. Spirit world, other planets, different dimensions. To me, angels, spirit guides and masters, well, they're all wise, evolved beings loving friends whose mission is to help us in our growth and to raise our consciousness. 
In fact, it was because of them that I made the final decision to walk with you. What do you mean? I asked apprehensively. Well, in Germany, he said, I was receiving many clear messages from them to join you on this walk. But I was confused and under so much pressure that I started to doubt these messages. I was risking so much and I didn't want to make a terrible mistake. Finally, I told them that I needed irrefutable proof that they were speaking with me before I made my final decision to go. I asked to see them. I couldn't help gaping and expectantly awaited his next words. And I saw them, he said. That's it. I don't want to know any more, I said firmly, standing to leave. This is too much, Alberto. You are scaring me even if you don't mean to. Alberto's otherworldly confession left me more spooked than ever, and I vowed to never again ask about his dreams. I knew enough. However, it did make me consider whether his dream was a premonition, somehow foretelling an impending separation. The thought saddened me. I locked away my fears, assuring myself that we were protected on our journey and that my fears would never come to pass. Having just arrived from the grandeur of Italy, this part of Slovenia was decidedly uninspiring. Homes were square or rectangular, with no architectural detail. They looked functional and well-maintained, but showed none of the adornments that we had become accustomed to seeing in every Italian town and village. That evening, in Hrusica, we found a church and a most welcoming priest. The next day, we were again mired in mist and could see nothing until we arrived at the simple shack that made up the Slovenian side of the border. The young officer casually leafed through our passports. Where are you going? He asked cheerfully in Italian. We explained and showed him our signs. He laughed heartily and excitedly called out to other people. We spent the next 20 minutes surrounded by merriment and camaraderie, speaking with candor to new friends and receiving their well wishes. Walking away from them, one of the men ran up and handed us a bottle of wine, putting a cap on our brief but most memorable experience among the hospitable Slovenian people. Another white building a few hundred meters later marked the Croatian border. The officer briskly asked for our passports, his face expressionless as he heard our explanations, and then motioned for us to cross. On January 31st, 2002, we took our first foggy steps into Croatia. We walked for about half an hour, only able to see the asphalt road, until we came upon a few houses. Looking around for a place to warm up from the damp cold, we glimpsed the words Bar Mir, Bar Peace, and could think of no better place to be. A young man welcomed us in English, while an older woman behind the bar nodded at us suspiciously. The bar was cozy and the food warm and fantastic, all home-cooked and plentiful. At the end of our meal, 
The young man brought shots of some homemade liquor, telling us they were compliments of his mother at the bar. We thanked him and saluted her. She nodded, but her expression was still serious. We explained our story to the questioning young man, which he translated for his mother. Her expression remained the same. I wondered if something had been lost in the translation. The village had no church, but thanks to the young man's efforts, a priest in Matulyi, 20 kilometers away, now awaited us with promise of shelter. It was already after two o'clock, so we were certain to arrive at night. The idea of walking in foggy darkness without added reflective material in another foreign country scared me, but we at least had a place to sleep. To our surprise, the mother refused payment for our meal. She never said a word, simply folded her arms across her chest and gazed at us. She even sent her son after us with a bag full of apples from her orchard. We learned our first Croatian word that day. Hvala. Thank you. We would come to appreciate the full depth of these people's caring during our unexpectedly long stay in this country. The Matulju city lights sparkled like diamonds, a welcome sight for the two weary pilgrims who finally arrived. The priest only spoke German and immediately motioned us to go to his car. We got in and he drove through the city and then out onto the open highway. We had no idea where we were going or how to even ask. And so we sat and waited. He finally stopped in front of a hotel, led us inside, exchanged a few words with the receptionist, wished us a safe journey, and then drove off. The receptionist, speaking English, explained that our room and meal were compliments of the priest. Over dinner, Alberto and I marveled at how the day had unfolded. We were once again in the unknown, relying on invisible forces to guide us. The Croatian heart had thus far revealed itself to be reserved, but grand. I also realized that we were walking in a country that had just survived a bloody civil war and nervously wondered how the message of peace, along with its messengers, would be received. With the help of our waiter who spoke some English, we translated our signs into Croatian. My sign would now read, Hodayutsi prema Jerusalemu zamir. And Alberto's would read, Hodayusi zamir. We couldn't correctly pronounce the words, but hoped that our intentions would be understood. Our first few days outside the known of Italy were promising, with our concerns for the moment unwarranted. The magical seemed to transcend borders and it was with a renewed enthusiasm that we looked ahead to the adventures that awaited us in Croatia.